Someone slow it down, this world is bouncing me around And it's rumblings, puts worry in my mind Within me I feel stirrings and peculiar thoughts occurring For shoes and suits I was not designed Can we dance right out of the city of schemes? Ignore the king they're only taxis of dreams Yeah, we're only animals Outrageous animals We're all the same inside Afraid of our own Rumblings drag me from my home To my core I'm shaking This world is mine for taking Oh, but I have no more desire in my bones Can we dance right out of the city of schemes? Ignore the kings They're only taxers of dreams And yet we're only Bonjour and welcome to the Dublin Book Festival as part of Blue Metropolis International Literary Festival.
Our first guest today is Neil Jordan, the Irish novelist, short story writer, film director and screenwriter. His fiction writing includes the award-winning short story collection Night in Tunisia, as well as novels like The Past, Shade, Mistaken and The Drowned Detective. You'll also know some of his many film titles such as Angel, The Company of Wolves and Mona Lisa and of course The Crying Game, which was based on one of his own short stories and won him an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. He sub sub he subsequently wrote and directed Michael Collins, a biography of the Irish independence leader, The Butcher Boy and The End of the Affair, which was based on the Graham Greene novel. Now, Neil can't be with us today in Kevin Street Library here in Dublin city centre because of COVID restrictions, but thanks to technology, he's here with us on screen. Neil, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm good, very good. Sorry I can't be there. No problem at all. I think I nearly had to take a deep breath there before I did that intro with that list of, of work that you've done. I mean. You've done quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, probably too much, you know, but I, I, I don't, I've done a lot. I'm very, I tend to do a lot of things, you know, I tend to write a lot and I tend to want to work a lot. And I always have something I want to do, you know, I don't always have people that want to do it with me, you know, which, but uh, I generally have about four or five things that I want to do at any one time, you know, so. And in terms of your career, I mean, did you plan it or did it just happen? Oh, no, I didn't plan anything at all. I just, I just, I started writing because I couldn't get a job, basically. And um, I from I began to work a bit in the theatre and I began to I worked with John Borman very briefly, the art, the, the English film director who lives in Wicklow. <clears throat> and he uh, invited me to make a documentary on him doing a movie called Excalibur. So I kind of got involved in films, into films in that way, you know, and one of the reasons I was fascinated by movies was because it almost seemed to me at the time, this was in the 70s, that because the city hadn't changed since James Joyce and WB Yeats and all walked across it, you know, and it almost seemed to, it almost seemed to me like that everything had been written, you know. So when I began to uh, think of stories and visual images that became terribly exciting because it seemed to me nobody had done that in Ireland before, you know, so I just kept going, you know, and Every now and then I'd make a movie and every now and then I'd return and write a book and people would say, oh, I, people who knew my movies would say, I never knew you wrote books, you know, that kind of thing. And people who knew my books kept saying, why the hell are you making films? Just keep writing books. So I've gone through life like that, really. Yeah. And do you do one project at a time or would you tend to run them parallel? Well, you can't, you can't, I can't, given the nature. I mean, I begin, I begin a piece of fiction, let's call it, you know, a piece of writing on the page and it takes a long time you know i write like during the during the COVID, during the first lock the last lockdown are we which lockdown are we in now we're in lockdown three i think if i remember correctly we're in the lockdown okay but when we were locked down before i began a novel you know and i wrote about 50 or 60 pages about it of it then i put it aside and at the moment i'm working on two or three movies i mean the way it works with movies is I write one and, you know, people, you know, studios and distributors and that read it and producers and they get interested. And then one a movie that I've written a few years ago comes up and for some reason it gets to be made before the other one. It, it's like that, you know, it's, so at any one time, I'm probably doing about three or four things, you know. And movies obviously take longer, as you said, because you never know what's going to happen with it. But at least when you're writing, you're in control. You can sit down and decide when you want to write on a given day. Of course you can, yeah. But yeah, I can decide what I want to write of a film script too. I just can't decide that somebody will make it with me, you know. 
It's a different thing, but it's it's not that. I'm not sure if I never made movies that I would have written any more books than I have. Do you understand what I mean? So, I mean, I don't know how many books I've written now. I, can't, I, have, um, I could count them. It's not you know, probably about six or seven. Do, do a tot. And the latest one then is The Ballad of Lord Edward and Citizen Small. And you were just talking there about, uh, you know, 1700s Dublin. So that's obviously something you've sort of hankered towards. But I suppose for anybody watching, just give us a quick history lesson. Who was Lord Edward? Lord Edward Fitzgerald? Yes. As a Dublin person, you shouldn't be asking that, seriously. For everybody watching, they may know, be wondering I mean, this, exactly who he is. You've been to Lord is. Edward Pub, you've been to, I, you know, there's, you've, you've been to the Oliver Bond Flats, maybe you haven't, but you know, there's, his name is all over, all over streets all over Dublin and the names of his associates. He was a United Irishman, he was the, uh, he was the son of the greatest, probably the grandest Irish family, the Fitzgeralds, the Dukes of Leinster. Yeah, he lived in Leinster House and he lived in Carton House. So they were they were part of the ascendancy then, part of a kind of a strata of wealth that we maybe it's similar today. Maybe these billionaires are the same, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, they were part of the, the Protestant aristocracy, our ascendancy, let's put it that way. And but the Fitzgeralds had roots to the old Irish, you know? So the, the, Duke, the Dukes of Leinster, they were a very old title. They went back to Silk and Thomas, you know? Anyway, he was the younger son of this family and he was fighting in the American War of Independence for the British Army. And he was injured and he was, his life, he was left dying in a field basically. <clears throat> and his life was saved by a runaway small called Tony, a runaway slave called Tony Small, you know? So I have written the uh, Tony Small's account of Lord Edward Fitzgerald's life. So it's a kind of a strange book. It's a book about two people from very totally different cultures, you know, two people from, uh, you know, from totally different kind of levels of possession of their, their of, the, of themselves and of the kind of environments they live in, you know. And Lord Edward uh, uh, became, Tony Small became Lord Edward's companion for the rest of his life, you know, his manservant, I suppose, but his friend as well. And uh, so, you know, I've written one man's account of the other. Yeah. So one man's account of this. And is that the reason, the reason why you wanted to do that was to be able to maybe show the grandeur of Lord Edward through the eyes of somebody who, who had so little? Yeah, perhaps I did. Also, 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 I wanted to tell the story of somebody who, uh, I mean, as Irish people, you know, we celebrate our resistance to empire don't we and our our kind of uh our efforts are kind of stumbling violent bloody efforts towards a form of freedom that we all live under now you know and we kind of regard ourselves as the four you know the forerunners of you know the indian experience you know gandhi and you know i suppose in, in many ways we were the first you know though perhaps france during the french revolutionary period it was a very different but uh so I wanted to examine that those set of presumptions, you know, from this from the point of view of somebody who actually had experienced actual slavery, you know, and real confinement. And in terms of researching that, obviously, there's lots known about, you know, Lord Edward, as you said, in his life and an awful lot written about it. Not so much about Tony Small. So how did you go about, I suppose, researching all of that? Well, I mean, I, I researched what I could. I mean, all, all, all of the letters of the Fitzgerald family are kept beautifully in the National Library which actually was part of this house, 
<laughs> for part of the Fitzgerald House. Though the National Library was built later, but it's 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 an, it's an adjunct to to Leinster House, you know, where the where the where they are plotting our continued confinement at this moment, you know, aren't they? And it's amazing looking at it now to think that you know one family lived in such a huge, expansive, you know, yeah. building. Well, at, the mo at the time, at the time it was set in a field. Mm, yeah. You know, because uh, Dublin. Dublin had been uh, the kind of Georgian Dublin had been begun north of the river, you know, you know what we now know as Parallel Square and Rutland Square and all that sort of stuff. So when when uh, Lord Edward's father built Leinster House, it was you know it was in an empty set of fields in a wasteland. You know? uh, so it must have been this grand, magnificent kind of thing sitting in the country, you know. But and he said, "Don't worry, the city will come to us," which it did actually, you know. So. But uh, sorry, what was your question? And uh, well, I was just talking about the fact that, you know, in terms of researching Tony Small, because so little was known about him, you know, in comparison to Edward. There's very little Edward. known about him. But in a way, that was that was kind of a, that was kind of an advantage to me writing the novel, you know, because uh, I couldn't I could invent, you know, I could invent his own inventions about his background because I, he himself doesn't didn't know much about it. I, I imagine a character who didn't know that much about his background, you know. And uh, I could invent a parallel story for Tony Small that kind of, kind of reflected on Lord Edward, Lord Edward Fitzgerald's presumptions about him and all that. I mean, the, 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 the novel, I was going to say the film, sorry, the novel, you know, it's a set, it's a set of suppositions, really, you know, because everything, everything you read in the novel about Lord Edward is factually correct, yeah. And you blended and that words then. into his mouth, perhaps that he may not have said, but everything you read about him is factually correct. Most of the, most of the things you read about Tony Small are invented, mm -hmm. except there is one letter. <coughs> excuse me, there's one letter that that exists in the National Library. It's a begging letter he wrote to the Fitzgerald family after Lord Edward had died. And uh, I quote that letter in the book. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking about nearly calling it a movie as opposed to a book, but it does have that, it does have a cinematic feel about it. And because, you know, the descriptions of Dublin in the 1700s, which I thoroughly enjoyed because, you know, I love history and architecture, um, they were just so rich and evocative. And again, from your perspective, making sure you got everything right, right down to, you know, the, the way people lived socially, but also street names, everything, you know, had to be really correct. Well, I mean, I'd done the movie Michael Collins and everyone accused me of getting everything wrong, you know, so... I kind of said, okay, I better take a bit more care. I mean, it's it's different in a movie. You know, in a movie, you've got to you've got to accept certain visual facts. You know, you know, for example, with Michael Collins, you know, we did close down Dame Street, and sometimes we closed down all the streets adjacent to the Leffy. But you know, half the buildings are actually wrong. You know, but they go into they go into kind of an out of focus distance, and you don't notice that. You know, but in a novel. I suppose it is more important to get the, the foreground exactly right, you know. And is this then, you know, Michael Collins aside, obviously, is this the furthest back in time you've gone with a work in a novel? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Are you going to go back further back now or stay time. there? <laughs> well, I haven't gone back. I haven't gone back to Adam and Eve yet, no. Not yet, no, not I yet. But I, um, you're, you're tempting me now.
I would, exactly. Um, and as well as Dublin, I mean, also, you know, we get to see a range of sort of sites from Paris, but also the wild areas of the US and Canada. Um, and, you know, they're trekked through Nova Scotia and all the rest. So, I mean, you crossed continents in this book. I mean, you, you, you didn't make life easy on yourself. It was a fairly big feat as well, I can imagine, in terms of research. Yeah, well, it was, it was rather wonderful. It was, it was wonderful to do all that research, really. I mean, but I crossed continents because they crossed continents, you know. Yeah. I mean, they themselves. I mean, he had an extraordinary life. He went to, uh, so he was a loyal officer. He was a lieutenant in the in the 19th Foot Regiment, I think. And uh, he then was elevated to, I don't know, some other some other title. Uh, and then he he threw he threw aside his title After, under the influence of the French Revolution. He gave away all his privileges. Yeah. And he threw aside his title and he tore off his epaulets and he declared himself citizen Fitzgerald, you know, to the horror of his of his friend, Tony Small, you know, who couldn't imagine. He, the thought of throwing away those protections, you know, was naive. And <clears throat> but I mean, I basically went where they went, you know, and they went to Holland, they went to they went to Canada, they traveled down, down the Great Lakes all the way from from Montreal down to New Orleans, you know, on foot and on, can on, on canoes and on barges and stuff like that. And they had an extraordinary time together. Really, they did, you know. And it, it struck, it, it was beautiful to write this book, you know. I'm not sure. And it was lovely because it was a book, you know, not because it was, uh, I, I wasn't writing something that could possibly be a movie. Do you understand what I mean? Because the voice was very clear to me. And it was, it was kind of an adventure story as much as everything else, you know, as well as as well as stories of a tragic friendship, you know. And is it it's nearly is it too big to be a movie, you know, because there's so much in it. It would nearly have to be a TV series, would it? I, I mean, there, the people are talking to me about making a TV series about it now. Right. But the important thing to me in the book is the voice, you know, and I don't know how you reproduce that voice on on on, on a, a different medium, you know. I mean, it it could possibly become maudlin. I mean, I, I was I was, you know, we live in. The, the kind of time where people talk about cultural appropriation and all that sort of stuff. And the only reason I wrote the book in the end was because I, the voice wanted to continue, you know, it, it, I found a, I found a voice away this, this man spoke that made sense to me. And also because it was one person's account of another person. Do you understand what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about a television series. I wouldn't make it as a movie. I definitely wouldn't know. And would you screenwrite it then if it was a TV series? Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah. But and actually on that, I think, how long? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm just happy with it as a, as a piece of as a collection of words at the moment. As a book. Way, and how long did it take you to write it? Oh, I was writing it on and off over about a four year period, you know, but I was doing other. I did another movie at the same time and, you know, and I suppose I'm interested, interested as well in terms of editing, you know, do you need a specialist editor who has a thorough understanding of that era to be able to, you know, give you the right direction for the book? Well, I, I think, yeah, I had a very good, very good editor, Jennifer of Lilliput, you know, and um, Jennifer Brady's her name. She was brilliant. And it was, it's interesting because I've never, I've never really had that kind of, that kind of engagement with an editor before, you know. And to me, it was really interesting because <clears throat> people question, you can be questioned, you know, and those questions lead you to question yourself, you know, and to question what you're doing and sometimes to improve your, and often it's a matter of, of somebody just saying, look, I don't fully understand this, you know, that kind of thing. 
But uh, I couldn't have written this book without an editor like Jennifer. Mm. And as you say, you have to build up a really strong, trusting relationship, really, in that sense. You do. I, I, don't, I don't see why there would be an untrusting relationship with an editor, though. You know, <laughs> oh, I'm very suspicious of this person. What are they trying to do to me? <laughs> that you can be, you can be guided, guided by them, exactly. Um, and in terms of writing, I mean, when you're writing the book like that, do you write every day or do you do it in spurts? I do it in large spurts, you know. I try to write every day for a long period, then I get distracted and do something else, and then I come back to it, you know. Let's put it that way. And also interested, we mentioned at the very start that you have adapted other books for screen. So, you know, The End of the Affair was based on the book by Graham Greene and The Butcher Boy by Pat McCabe. How, you know, in terms of adaptation of those books for the screen, you know, looking back on them now, um, how did you go about it? Oh, I love adapting other people's work. It's just brilliant. I just love it because because all of the primary work is done. Do you understand what I mean? I mean, if, 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 I, uh, if I have an attachment if, if I say I, re I read Graham Greene's novel, you know, now they made a movie of it before, which was not very good, which actually I didn't see until I made my own movie. But I begin to read this and it's kind of such a relief, you know, to say, oh, I'd love to make a movie of this book. And part of the relief is the book knows exactly where it's going. Do you understand what I mean? Because when you start writing yourself, you don't know where it's going and it's exhausting trying to find out where, where, this, where the characters want to go, where they want to end up, you know. So, I mean, kind of playing around with another piece of fiction or even sometimes with another script. Like I made a, a movie based on Anne Rice's interview with the vampire. You know, I did The Butcher Boy, Pat McCabe's The Butcher Boy and Breakfast on Pluto. And, you know... I mean, I don't think every book is at the moment. I'm 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 adapting a book by Hugo Hamilton, which has not been published yet. Right. All the pages, yeah, yeah, which is really fun, you know. But it's I mean, if you get a book that speaks to you, that you want to make into a movie, it's like being given a gift. Do you understand what I mean? You're given this gift and, and of the imagination somehow, and you just have to model it differently. Is the Hugo Hamilton book the main one you're working on, or have you other activity? I have other things going on as well. Yeah, yeah. I always have to have other things in case one thing doesn't work out. So I'm sorry. <laughs> and it's are you like, are you well, writing at the moment in terms of books or, or short stories? I'm very unfaithful. I'm very unfaithful. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm a real I'm a real adulterer. Let's put it very, that way. You very know? amorous altogether. No, you have to have two or three things going because you never know which is going to fall. On. But I will make Hugo's I will make Hugo's uh, book into a film. Okay, and will you base you that? Know, where's uh, where's that book probably, based? Is it is it in maybe Ireland? Maybe next year. Pardon? Where is that book based? Is it in Ireland? It's based in Berlin. Ah, okay. In Berlin, yeah. It's a very interesting book, it's, but it's not out yet, so I can't talk too much about it. Okay, fair enough. Well, look, I think you know, as I said, we just wanted to have a a chat about about you know the novel, the one, and as I said, it's amazing because the the depiction of Dublin as well as everywhere else in it is beautiful. So anybody who who wants to harp back to the 1700s, it's absolutely the place to go. Now that you've written it and you're looking back on it, are you happy with it? Uh, was there anything else you would have done or tweaked at it to make it any different? Well, no, no, because because uh, no, I, I'm very happy with it. I really am happy with it. You know, I'm very happy that it's published. You know, we should organise walking tours, you know, based on the book. We should, yes. absolutely. I walk around Dublin with a big sign saying, Lord Edward walked here. <laughs> no, I'm very, very happy with it. At the time I read, uh, you know, I was, I was away somewhere in, somewhere, and the only book in this rented house was Alexander Dumas' The uh, 
Oh, God. The Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. Now, I've seen many movie and TV versions of The Count of Monte Cristo, but I've never read the book. And the book was absolutely wonderful, you know, just bloody great. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I've, I've read, I read quite a bit of Dumas when I was a kid, but I've forgotten it all. But, uh, and I, I kind of wrote this novel as if Dumas himself had written it. Do you understand what I mean? Because there is a sense of adventure in the novel. There's a sense of camaraderie. There's a sense of uh, betrayal by the world and by politics. And there's a sense of uh, kind of an intractable world kind of crushing the human spirit, them both being at war, you know, that kind of thing, everything you get in Dumas. So I kind of thought if Alexander Dumas had written this, would he be happy with that? That was that was what I was thinking as I was, was finishing it. That was your aim. Well, Neil Jordan, thank you so much for joining us here today. We've had had a great conversation and we'll we'll look forward to whatever comes next. Thank you very much. Goodbye now. Cheerio. Okay. See ya. Good luck. Rain falls at night. The moon hides its glow. Sand of her feet on the dark cobblestone. Hard is a place, there's nowhere to go. So she's humming the tune, lament the unknown.
needed a home I didn't need shame You left me for dead You left me unnamed I needed a home I didn't need shame You left me for dead You left me Nuno O'Connor is a full-time fiction writer and poet. She's from Dublin, which appropriately enough for today's chat is the hometown of literary giant James Joyce. But she now lives in Galway, which also happens to be the hometown of Nora Barnacle, who is the wife of James Joyce. Nuno has published five novels, four collections of short fiction and three poetry collections. She's won the RTE Francis McManus Award and has been shortlisted for the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year, the Irish Book Awards Novel of the Year and the Dublin International Literary Award as well as many others. She's a BA in Irish from Trinity College in Dublin and a Master's in Translation Studies from DCU. And on top of all of that, she also teaches creative writing on a part-time basis. Nula, you're very welcome. You're a busy lady. (laughs) No problem at all. And really looking forward to talking to you about Nora Barnacle today, as we said, um, you know, the partner and later the wife of, of our literary giant, James Joyce. But first of all, tell us about her. Who was she? Nora was an earthy, pragmatic, good-humoured woman from Galway who was brought up by her grandmother in Galway because her mother was busy with her seven other children. (laughs) And Nora was sent to live with Granny Healy nearby. And so she grew up essentially as an only child with her grandmother. She was a sort of a very confident girl. She left school at 12, the way most people did in those times in Ireland. And she went to work in the presentation convent as a laundress and a portress. When she was 19, she had a row with her uncle Tommy, who was now her guardian because Granny had died about a boy. And Nora decided she'd had enough of this. Tommy beat her actually. So she left Galway overnight and in secret and went to Dublin. And this was early 1904. And in June 1904, she had her first encounter on the 10th of June with James Joyce. And six days later, on the date that is now immortalized as Bloomsday, she and Joyce had their first date as such. They walked out for the first time that day. And at that point, James Joyce wasn't known at all, was he? No, James Joyce was, um, he was writing then, but he was, I suppose, what we'd call an aspiring writer. He had had some stories and articles published, but he was working on Dubliners, his first collection of short stories, which actually wouldn't see the light of day for another 10 years or so. He had a long struggle into being published uh, probably similar to most writers. Um, but they it was a real meeting of um, bodies and it was a meeting of minds in many sense. It was also a lovely meeting of personalities in the sense that Nora was this pragmatic, earthy, good humoured person. And Joyce was a little more introverted, a little, bo- a little more maybe nervous in his personality. And so they had this beautiful sort of yin and yang where they complemented each other. But he took one look at her. Her biographer, Brenda Maddox, said, um, a person can be taken at first glance. And certainly both Nora and Jim, as she knew him, uh, were taken at the first glance. And they fell in love almost instantly. And they had a lifetime together then after that. They did. They spent then, so four months after meeting, um, they eloped together to Europe. So to Zurich first, where 
excuse me, where Joyce thought he had a job and actually the job turned out not to be there. So then they went from Pola to Trieste, settled in Trieste. So they were together until Joyce's death in 1941. And to be honest, they were rarely apart. They had a very strong bond. Um, they didn't marry until 27 years into their union because, well, Joyce was anti-marriage the way he was anti-Catholic, you know, he didn't really believe a piece of paper and meant anything. They ended up marrying eventually because um, they had children and he wanted to secure their inheritance because at this stage he had got some money. So before we go on, maybe we'll do a quick reading um, from the book, just, I suppose, to give an illustration or a demonstration of just the connection that was involved with the two of them. Yeah, this is early in their relationship. So they know each other about two or three months at this point, And she's enraptured with him as much as he's enraptured with her. So when he saw her, he was drawn to her looks. But then he discovered she had a mouthful of wonderful stories and a great sort of way of talking that was very unfiltered, maybe we'd say today. So this is Nora contemplating Jim and some of Jim's reactions to Nora. I call this chapter Mouth. August, Dublin, 1904. Jim has a marvellous way of speaking. It's not only the lovely words he knows, a whole dictionary of them inside his mind. It's his voice. It goes up and down, but keeps itself still and contained too. Jim sounds like a man on a stage giving a speech. He could be saying anything, anything, any old thing at all, and still he comes across as if he's rehearsed lines and is now delivering them. Every sentence that falls from his mouth does so at the right time and in the exact right way. I see it as a God-bestowed gift that he has. And because his voice is a fine one, like an orator's, a Thomas Kettle or a Charles Stuart Parnell, you can't but believe everything he says. The girls I work with in Finn's hotel call Jim posh and they can't believe he's with me. Molly Gallagher says to me one day, you think the likes of him would be with one of his own kind? But am and I good enough for any man, Molly, I said, stung by her. Oh, you are a course, Nora, she said, linking arms with me, but I could see the doubt in her face. In truth, I too find it hard to credit that Jim would choose me above the educated ladies he knows, those sheehy women and the rest. They, like him, have a grand air about them and they sound so fine like creatures from another world. My voice, in comparison to all of them, is that of a honking goose, loud and fast and spilling out of me. But Jim tells me I sound melodious and longs to hear me speak. Speak to me in your Western tongue, sweet Nora, he says, when we lie atop Hoth Hill, letting the cool dusk wind lap over us. I love to be by the sea with him, bathing in the salty air. What do you want me to say, Jim? I ask. Tell me, he said softly, the siren songs of your soul. Let me hear the melodies of your mind, my little Galway rogue. That's the way he talks. From another man, the things he said would come across daft. But Jim can sound like a poet and a politician, both at the same time. He has the perfect voice for himself, for who he is, a thing to admire and love about him. And yes, I do love him, I do indeed. I know it already because when I'm not with Jim, it's as if I carry the whispering ghost of him wrapped around me. I feel him gone from me as if part of my body were taken. He never leaves me, head or heart. And is that not the sweetest of gifts? Today, though, he chastises me. What sort of a letter was that, Nora? How do you mean, Jim? I roll on my side to look at him. 
He pets my hair with his fingers. It didn't sound like you at all. I dip my eyes and pout my bottom lip. I don't know how to write like me. He tips my chin upward. Yes, you do. Write as you speak, Goosine. Isn't that why I like you so much? Your gorgeous Galway voice and your funny little tales. I'll try, Jim, I say, though I haven't a notion how I'll do what he asks. And isn't it amazing, as you said, that they seem to be such two opposites as demonstrated there, but just the connection was just so strong. Absolutely. I mean, they both were very sensuous individuals and they were both very confident in their own way. And when you think about it, they were both poor. Now, he was from the fallen middle class, sort of the fallen genteel, but she came from a fairly working class background. Her father was a baker. Um, but they had, so they had all of those things in common, but they had this sort of glorious, sensuous confidence also. And so when they came together, there was a great sort of a, a lustiness, I suppose, between them. That really worked. And then, of course, both loved to sing. They really met um, well together through music. And they both loved stories and telling stories and talking. And why did you want to tell her story? Um, I moved from Dublin to Galway 25 years ago and I was aware of her as a courageous local woman, uh, the muse and rock to Joyce. And I started to go to the annual Bloomsday celebration at the Nora Barnacle Museum, a tiny little museum, which is her mother's house um, every year. And we'd sing and we'd recite and we'd drink and what have you, you know. And I, so I suppose she was in my consciousness for years. I had read Maddox's biography. I had seen Pat Murphy and Jerry Stembridge's beautiful film, Nora. And it wasn't until really I was studying Italian by night and doing an essay about Joyce in Trieste when I kept sort of thinking more about Nora than about either Joyce or his friend who I was writing about. And my research ended up with me going back to read the Maddox biography again. And I wrote a short story, which kind of, I often do this thing where I start on a small canvas. It's like a tester piece for me. Um, and then I found I didn't want to let Nora go. So the story was published in Granta and, you know, it won a prize and stuff. But I just felt I need to stay with this woman. I want to know more. I want to follow her. And I want to see how she feels about being married to the genius Joyce or being the life partner of and how it felt to negotiate things like their daughter Lucia's schizophrenia and all of that and their their wander through Europe and how she fared. And they did. And it was a fairly epic journey across Europe and eventually with with two kids in tow. Um, but it wasn't all fun. You know, they they did seem to have quite tough times, particularly his personality liked being out and about. And, you know, she ended up, you know, having to mind the, the kids and look after things and living hand to mouth and, and near, near poverty nearly at points. So she sort of felt like she, it was she was the glue that kept them kept them together sometimes. She could have walked, but she didn't. She didn't. I suppose by eloping with him from a Catholic country, she had put herself in a certain position. But also, of course, there was the great love between them, which was the ultimate glue. But she um, she respected his writing and he saw great nobility in her and had great respect for her, too. And so they found a way to make it work. Jim did drink too much and his his alcoholic tendencies caused issues and problems between them. She tried to stop him drinking. She begged him to stop drinking. Not only was it using up their money, it was using up his writing time. So she wanted to keep him on the straight and narrow because she knew how much the writing meant to him as well. So he also had a job, of course, teaching English at the Berlitz School. 
and he had to get up to do that. So she minded him, she made sure, he, he wasn't fond of eating, so she was always trying to feed him. Um, and then of course, she very quickly became pregnant after their elopement. And so quite soon they had a baby to deal with too. And then shortly after that, another baby. So her hands were full. At one point though, because he was drinking the money away, the small money they had, she had to take in laundry. Um, he brought over his brother and later two of his sisters to Trieste. And the argument could be that he brought Stanny, his brother over, who was a great friend to him, to sort of fund his lifestyle. He loved opera and Nora loved opera as well. Uh, they loved style, they loved to dress really well and he was always trying to adorn her, even when money was scarce. Mm -hmm. So there is a scene in the novel where he brings home a scarf to Nora and this really did happen and she threw it at him in a fury, you know, to stop spending money on yeah. stuff like that. We need food more urgently than I need a new scarf. And she was a very straight talker. And I think that's what I love about the balance of the relationship as well, you know, because at one point she says she'll box the head off him, that wonderful Irish phrase. But even when she's talking about Ulysses, you know, which possibly one of the world's most famous novels, you know, she only read a couple of pages of it um, and described it as nothing but cardology and strings of baby babble. I love it. Yeah, she wasn't mad about Ulysses. I think she may have been a little jealous of Molly Bloom. She used to call her that fat Molly and go back to your fat Molly and stuff like this but she did respect the work that went into it the seven years of writing um, and the, the journey to publication you know she didn't have to love the work she loved Finnegan's actually more than she loved Ulysses um, but you know he still got the work done because she facilitated him to get the work done and I think that's an important piece that we have to acknowledge was you know, their grandson, Stephen Joyce, who only died last year, their last remaining direct descendant, said that without Nana, he called her Nana, they spoke Italian at home, uh, he, he said uh, he, she, he could have done none of it. You know, so certain people, good friends of theirs and family, recognise Nora's importance in the whole Joyce project as such. And, you know, she's such a, I suppose, strong, passionate, loyal Irish woman as, as, a, as a description, but was she a woman of her time or was she unusual for her time? Um, I do have sort of debates about this in my own head. In one way, we see them as these lusty mavericks, maybe because of the erotic letters that we know about. In another way, they could be quite square and bourgeois and prissy. You know, they weren't bohemian. They lived in bohemian Paris in the 1920s, but at that stage they were heading into their 40s. They had two large teenage children. They weren't really interested in that whole lost generation thing of drinking and sleeping around. And actually they quite looked down their nose at that. You know, they they would talk about the Americans' loose morals and be sort of tutting. And, but then realizing that their own children were heading into that, they were probably trying to protect them to a certain extent, like Giorgio had an affair with Peggy Guggenheim, for example, and married Helen Castor. Um, so their children were entering into the Roaring Twenties. Joyce and Nora were already beyond where that was a point of interest for them. So I think we have a sort of a, an idea of them in glamorous Paris, but actually they were a, a household of four and he was a serious writer doing his work at this point. And you mentioned the erotic letters and all the rest. Now, be warned, there is a lot of sex in this book, you know. So how, you know, how did you feel writing that or how did you approach it? 
Um, I, well, I always approach my characters with great love, respect and empathy. I don't want to make, you know, saints of them. And I want to show all aspects of their lives. And so it was very important for me to include the erotic letters, which are these sort of astonishing letters that Joyce wrote to Nora when they were parted in 1909 and he was in Ireland on business. He was setting up a cinema. He was a great man for schemes. Uh, and Nora was back home in Trieste. And he suggested to her that she might write a certain type of letter and she knew exactly what he meant. And so she did just that. Uh, and then this cascade of letters went back and forth between them. Um, and his are extant. You can read them online and you know, they're quite eye-opening in their frankness, but I suppose anyone who's read Ulysses wouldn't be that surprised. But if you haven't read Ulysses, you might be like, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is some uh, heavy stuff here, you know? Um, and then her letters are missing. And so I had to write her letters. So I used his letters as a call and response guide. And so the letters are there, some of them, not all of them, because there were many, many letters. It was a very enjoyable part of the process of writing. I don't believe um, in not including sex in my novels. I don't do that old trick of closing the bedroom door and then you're on to the next scene. I quite like writing the sensuous stuff and I think it's important. It's, a, it's an important part of our lives when we're in relationships and I think it's important to depict that in the relationships I and a hugely important aspect of, of this particular relationship as well, because essentially it's a love story and you've written a love story. Um, and is that what you set out to do? It wasn't really. I wanted to bring Nora into the centre of the stage. You know, she's always been like a sort of a side blot in Joyce's, you know, pages or whatever. So I wanted to bring her centre stage and figure out what she felt about the whole life that they had. And then I suppose for me, the love is a love of four people. It is Joyce, Nora, Giorgio and Lucia and the extraordinary love they enjoyed as a family of four because they moved so much. So they moved, you know, from Zurich to Pola to Trieste, to Rome, to Trieste, to Paris. They were in London for a bit. They would come back to Ireland on occasion. Not much, it has to be said. But they moved so much and even within those cities, they moved house 20 addresses in Paris alone that these were unrooted children. Mm -hmm. So their education was, you know, interrupted all the time. And so they very much relied on each other, the four of them, for company, for conversation, for information, you know, for everything that we do rely on in a family. And more so because their friend group changed so often, their schoolmates changed so often that they, they really relied on each other. And so I have no doubt, but that the love between them was fantastic. You only have to read letters later letters even that Joyce wrote to his children to see the love, respect, the family language they use, the family sense of humour. That was another thing they had in common, their sense of humour, Joyce and Nora. They both loved fun and that comes across hugely. Like when they were at one point in Paris and he was writing Finnegan's Wake, she'd be in bed in the other room and he'd be inside writing and he'd be laughing his head off and she'd be knocking on the door saying, shut up, shut up, I want to sleep, stop writing that thing, you know. So. The four of them, I think for me, it's a love story of four people. The research then, you know, again, we know so much about Joyce over the years, not so much about Nora. So you'd sort of limited resources to go to, to try and find out more about this, this woman, did you? Well, this, the Maddox biography, biography rather, is very uh, in-depth. It's huge and it's fantastic. And then there's another biography of Nora by Porrick O'Lee, um, a local biography. It's more about Nora in Galway. 
There are other books. There's so much written about Joyce. You can think of any aspect of Joyce and that you will find a book written on it. So I read Stanny's books and I read the biography of Joyce's father. And I read as many biographies of Joyce as I could manage to see what people were saying about Nora. And I also read books that their friends wrote. The artist Frank Budgeon, uh, Pork and Mary Collum wrote about their friendship with Joyce and Nora. And all of them praised her highly for her sort of her natural bonhomie, her uh, generous table that she kept, her sort of pragmatic optimism. You know, he didn't have that. And so she was she brought a lovely levity to the relationship uh, and to the household. And also then in terms of the setting, you know, the early 1900s. But again, you, you go th- right through their life, right up to 1941 when, when he dies. Um, so just that research and making sure that you're meticulously accurate and mapping it against historical events as well. Yeah, I am one of those biofictional writers who believes in the chronology. I'm sort of um, I just I like to keep to the chronology of what we know. So I do quite carefully keep to this happened then. And I do bring it to 1951 when Nora died. So the 10 years she spent alone, I also cover that. I mean, it is a quicker part of the novel and it's towards the end. But um, it's it was important for me not to just drop her when Joyce dies. And even at the end when she does, you know, she's she's about to die and, and she's going to him. That's the way she sees it. They're going to be together again. They're going to be a unit again. And it was uh, that's why I was calling it a love story, really, from the start to the end earlier on. Even when I'm writing a novel that's not based on real people, I know about two thirds of the way in how it's going to end. And so that ending came to me. Um, I knew how she had died in a sanatorium in Switzerland. And I so about two thirds of the way through, I started imagining that death and what would happen. And I had all these ideas about using maybe a passage from Finnegan's Wake or the beat of goose wings, because obviously her name was Nora Barnacle, Barnacle Goose. He called her Goosine in my novel, not in real life. That's an invention of mine. So I had all these ideas about how it would end. And then as I move towards the ending of a novel, the writing of it, I, I find my ending and I know how it's going to end. So I had that for a good chunk of time. And you obviously enjoy that blend of fact and fiction, which is what this is. I love it. I've become like a research fetishist, you know. I honestly think I'm only writing these novels, so I have an excuse to do bunches of research, go to libraries, travel to Trieste and Zurich and Paris. And And have a great time. Have a fantastic time. I do love the research and I love the on the ground research because that's where you'll get the texture of the the places, but also a feel. A lot of these places in Europe have not changed much since like the early 1900s. It's amazing. Paris is pretty much, and particularly the areas they lived in, they're pretty much the same. They lived around the Eiffel Tower, sort of Champs-Élysées, up that part. So even that kind of doesn't really sit with our idea of them maybe being in the Latin Quarter where Shakespeare and Co was. But, you know, they were a family at that point. So they lived a quiet life. And you've done it before as well with historical fiction with Emily Dickinson, the poet. Um, And interestingly, you know, told through her voice, but also through the eyes of an Irish maid. So was the Irish maid an invention? Well, Emily Dickinson did have Irish maids. She had three that we know about. But I decided to create a fictional maid, a cousin of one of the real maids, Maggie Marr. So I had this girl, Ada Concanon, that I invented and I made a dual narrative. So each chapter is one chapter is uh, Emily and then the next chapter is Ada all the way through two first person voices. And for me, I had attempted a uh, historical fiction novel before that about a real person, an artist. 
and I had over-researched it and the whole thing had flopped on me. So I kind of became mildly worried about this and decided I'll create a fictional character so that I have this nice balance. And that was actually quite useful because I could stick to the chronology of Emily's world. And I set that one in 1866, just when Emily was entering her white phase, just when she was retreating in earnest from the world. Um, and so I had a nice point of drama in Emily's life. And I brought this fresh young Irish maid in. She was only 17 and she comes into the house all a bustle and what happens then. And Emily was actually, it's on the record, she was extremely kind to their maids. So they have this kitchen relationship. So, How long does it take you then to write? Well, the Nora novel grew and grew and grew and grew right. and became the longest novel I'd ever written. So, um, yeah, it takes about a year to two years, depending on what's involved. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do my research in tandem, actually. I always do it in tandem. And I walk the ground once I have a first draft. And then there's another two years of editing, toing and froing with my agent over edits. Then she sells it to an editor. We do the edits with them. And then because I'm published in the States first, um, there's a long lead time for the States for publishing. So I started this, I guess, uh, 2017 and it's out now. So that's the kind of timeline. And now, as you said, it's on shelves and it's available. How do you feel about Nora Barnacle now? I love her to bits and I love James Joyce as well. I love him even more than I have ever loved him as a reader. I empathise with him, I sympathise with him and I feel I have great understanding for him. I read Ulysses from start to finish last year for the first time. You made it all the way through. I did. Well, I did it with a group to make sure. So there was, you know, I had a deadline every week I had to read an episode and it's a brilliant way to read it. I did that with the James Joyce Centre in Dublin with Caroline Elbey's book group, uh, Ulysses book group and um, fantastic because we made an, a huge project of it. We listened to podcasts at the same time and we read and we discussed and it was wonderful. And that as well gave me another extra insight into Joyce and Nora. Absolutely. Well, Nula, I was nearly going to call you Nora there. Uh, Nula, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks a million, Brida. And now we're going to finish up with Claire Sands and Susan O'Neill. Sovereign Lodi Whisper my secrets Embracing thee All carry my song Across the sea Stillness and rage, the dark and light. 
Thank you. 